God, Brenna, I'm actually here. <laughs> We're starting on time, and you're here. I know. It's shocking. So, uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Hazel and Katniss <laughs> and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna, and I want to point out that last week you didn't show up for our podcast, and the week before that you didn't finish the book we were reading. This is true. I'm actually going to pull a parachute ripcord and just like <laughs> vacate the premises halfway through this recording. You won't even know. It'll just be dead silence. Well, that'll suck because I have very little to say about this book and movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's every possibility that this episode is going to be 15 minutes long. <laughs> well, it'll be longer I'm sure than we'll, that we'll drag it over the hour mark. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're talking about The Maze Runner today, um, the novel by James Dashner, and also there's a movie. But before we get to that, wow. I guess... <laughs> the movie is celebrating its fifth anniversary, and I'm sure Wes Ball would probably like us to acknowledge that he did something. And did you know that the book is actually celebrating its 10th anniversary in October? So we're getting a double anniversary? Ooh, double dip. Yes. <laughs> You're very good at your job, Joe. But before we jump into it, why don't we talk about homework? Yes. Uh, so you've been delinquent and very busy the last few weeks. Do you have something that you want to contribute this week? <laughs> I actually sort of do. Okay. So in part of my personal but also slightly spousally mandated quest to f relax. <laughs> this is good. Take yeah. that advice. <laughs> I um I've restarted my paper like pull list at the comic shop where you keep a box and they save your favorite comics for you and then you go in once a week and pay for them. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And that keeps independent businesses alive in a day and age when, you know, corporate conglomerates are taking over the world. It's very Good true and it's also worth mentioning to people who like comics that one of the um many infuriating things about comics is that really ultimately the only sales that count are the pre-sales of single-issue comics. Wait, what? Yeah, if you read primarily trade paper, or even if you read primarily digitally, mm -hmm. those sales figures are not typically part of what makes decisions about what comics stick around and what comics get canceled. That is really dumb. It's I don't like that. <laughs> no, it's super dumb, and it's an ongoing problem with the comics industry that privileges a certain kind of reader. Right. So traditionally marginalized fans of color, uh, mm. queer fans, women fans have not found comic shops to be the most welcoming places. So what you're saying is 95% of our listeners. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as a result, there's a whole demographic of comics readers that we actually know from what little we know about digital sales and trade paper sales is pretty big. We also know that most of those fans, fans in those demographics do prefer to read trade paper or digitally yes. and yeah marvel and dc and the other big comics houses barely acknowledge that you exist uh, so as much as is i this where i shake my fist at the patriarchy again it's so infuriating because it has meant the cancellation of some pretty great titles that were actually really well supported by fans just supported in a different kind of way mm -hmm. and it's rare i mean it's becoming more common that Marvel especially pays attention to like online chatter. Like they know about things like the Carol Corps as the fandom for Captain Marvel in a way that they didn't used to. Wait, Captain Marvel or Mrs. Marvel? Captain or Marvel's Marvel. fandom. Captain Marvel's fandom is the Carol Corps. Oh, yes. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm part of the other side. The Kamala Corps? Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to restart my pull list for a bunch of reasons. Number one, my husband was like, it would be a good thing for you to have a reason once a week to leave the house and do something that isn't work. And this is true. This is a thing that you could do that would be that. And you could take your comics to a coffee shop and read them and recharge a little bit. So for mental health reasons, I've done it. But also because I was sort of tired of spending good money on comics, but it wasn't really sending the message that I wanted it to to the publishers. So I went in, now that we're in a new town, and it has a very cute little comic shop. Mm -hmm. I went in and set up my pull list, and the guy's comment to me was, wow, these are a lot of comics about women. Like, it's pretty much exclusively comics about women. <sighs> Thanks for coming out. But, you know, it's good. Sure, yeah. So I've ordered a bunch, but my first stack came in this week, and it included The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl and Ms. Yes. Marvel, both yes. of which we've talked about on the show before, and also Captain Marvel, 
mm-hmm. which is also great, but I'm not going to talk about that because it's not YA property. Right. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, I learned in this issue, is coming to an end. What? Yeah. No. Yeah, I know. They're on issue 47 right now. That's the one I picked up this week. And they're going to go to issue 50 and then call it a day. And it's not because it's being canceled. The creators are ready to move on to different projects. So Okay. I mean, I guess 50 is a good run. 50 is a great run for comics. It's especially a great run for 50 issues with basically the same or similar creative team. is kind of unheard of nowadays in comics. So Right. Yeah. But if you're a fan of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl and you haven't looked at it for a while, you might want to get caught up because the final issue will be out in about three months, it looks like. Wow. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I'm reading the new Ms. Marvel, which is... The first time I've read the character not written by G. Willow Wilson, who created her. Right. Saladin Ahmed has taken over as the author, and I just wanted to reinforce for folks, it's still super fantastic. Okay. He doesn't have the same sense of humor. It's not quite as... Funny? It's not quite as funny, Hmm. but still super heartwarming. The friendships are still really well drawn and well articulated, and Ms. Marvel is still sort of searching for her identity while kicking butts and taking names. So it's still a good read. It's just a little bit of a different spirit, but still recommend it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're recording a little bit in advance, but one of the exciting things that has happened in our world (gasps) is actually the announcement at the recent D23 Expo, which is Disney's annual upfront presentation. They recently just announced that Ms. Marvel is going to be part of their live action lineup when they launch their... Basically, their channel that's going to take over the world on November 12th. I feel like I'm in a really troubled relationship with Disney because yeah. on mm-hmm. the one hand, the part of me that is like smart and critical is like, wow, it's a problem that one company owns all of our media. And then the yes. part of me that really loves stuff is like, but this is all the stuff I love in one place. Yeah, especially when they announce that and they announce She-Hulk and mm-hmm. all these other properties where you just think no one else would ever pull the trigger mm-hmm. on these kinds of properties and they're willing to throw tons of money yeah even the kinds of star wars stories they're willing to tell and i think joe you'll probably agree with me as a canadian fan the fact that they're launching in canada at the same time as in the u.s okay we don't get the hulu package but we're at a pretty comparable price point and we're launching at the same time that's pretty exciting it's so rare yeah we don't have to go scouting around on mysterious weird streamers (laughs) yes yes it's a new day my friends we can legally pay for entertainment like the americans do well, yeah, yes. Okay. All right. Well, so I did I'm sad more. about Squirrel Girl. I know it is sad. There's nothing like it in comics. There really isn't. No, it's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a lot of mail to get through, and then I need to do a quick plug for something. So let's begin with the mail. Woo woo. We get mail now. I know. Yes. Pretty regularly. It's kind of exciting. It's super exciting. It seems to come in in batches, so all of a sudden there will be three or four emails all at once, and it's very exciting, and then nothing for a couple of days, and my life can just resume its regular boringness. So So we're going to start with an email from a UK listener named Becca Allen. Hi, Becca. And she wrote in to suggest, A, a YA bingo of unlikely friendships, which I have added to the board. Nice. Yes, so we've got that. And then she also wanted to highlight a adaptation that was completely not on our radar. And she brought it up because she said it was also not on her radar. <laughs> so Nice. We're all learning together. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a Netflix television series called Trinkets. So she had watched the television show on Netflix, didn't realize that it was also a book by Kristen Smith, who is the co-writer of Legally Blonde, 10 Things I Hate About You, Ella Enchanted, She's the Man, an executive producer on Whippet. So these are all fantastic properties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here's the quick logline. The story follows three teenage girls from different cliques at the same high school who meet at Shoplifters Anonymous (laughs) and become friends despite their differences. And the book is told from all three perspectives, although apparently the book seems to frame one girl, Mo, as the main character, whereas the TV show focuses on Elodie as the protagonist instead. So she asked that we consider it for a future episode. I was going to say, have you already added it to the calendar? I have. Yeah, I figured. Unfortunately, the rest of the year is kind of chock full just because we are trying to hit some anniversaries. We're trying to hit some new releases to coincide, help us get a little bit more publicity. So we probably won't get to that until next year, but it is 
on the docket. Now you just have a reason to keep listening, Becca. Thanks for writing in. Okay. So we also got an email from Andrew Kilmer. Hi, Andrew. He wanted to thank you, Brenna, for the Tiffany D. Jackson recommendation. Because she changes your life. Everybody go read Tiffany D. Jackson. Yes. So he (laughs) said that he had read Monday's Not Coming last year, and he was just getting around to Allegedly. So good. And then he recommended a couple of book picks to us. So one of them is None of the Above by I.W. Gregorio? Yes. Have you heard of this one? I have. I've read it. Hard cosine. It's so good. So good. So it's apparently about a girl who discovers that she's intersex Mm -hmm. when she goes to the doctor's office. So quite unexpectedly, this life-shattering revelation that prompts her to think about how she constructs her own identity, but then also that diagnosis gets leaked to the entire school. So that sounds juicy and very interesting and... I think intersex is one of those, I don't want to say it's like a last frontier, but I don't think it's something that people are highly aware of. So mm-hmm. it's really encouraging to hear that there's a book dedicated to someone working through. Yeah. When we talked about Virgin Suicides about uh, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, mm-hmm. it's a text that deals with an intersex character, but it's not an own voices. And I was trying to think right. when I saw that email, if I could think of any other big high profile books about intersex characters and I I really can't so I think it's an important area of representation and it was just a really outside of anything else it was just a really compelling great read I read it in like a day really yeah yeah I read it in a day it was great nice Uh, And then Andrew has two other recommendations. The Art of Being Normal by Lisa Williamson. Such a good title. I haven't heard of it, but it's just just such a good title. I know. (laughs) It's apparently a story about a friendship that blossoms between a trans boy and a trans girl, which caught my attention because so often you don't hear of any connection between the two. Like It's either a female trans narrative or a male trans narrative. Yeah, because the narratives are usually sort of about solitary experience, so right. have friendship at the core. Sounds revelatory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the final one is All-American Boys by Jason Reynolds and Brendan Keeley, and it focuses on two boys, one black and one white, whose lives intertwine after the black boy is a victim of police brutality and the white boy is a witness. And that one I have read, and it's really good. And I was realizing we haven't done any Jason Reynolds on the show yet. We have not, no. There are two adaptations, I believe. We talked about Seven Stories. Yeah, still waiting for that one. Yeah, and I think there's another one in production. So I'm looking forward to getting a chance to really cover him on the show because he's fantastic. Yeah, your description of Seven Stories really intrigued me. So definitely keeping an eye out for that one. Woohoo! So thank you for the recommendations, Andrew. Um, we've got one final piece. So... This one is not a recommendation, it's a gentle chastising, and it's directed at me from a listener named Josephine Star... Oh, Josephine, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to mispronounce your last name. Stargard? Stargard? Josephine, I already like you. (laughs) So, Josephine starts off by saying that she really likes the podcast, and she's very appreciative, representation, and all these great discussions, and then... Oh, sorry, she does have one other thing. She says she read one of the books, Brenda, that you mentioned called The Danger to Herself and Others. Oh, good. And she says it's excellent and that she hopes we say something about it on the show. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And then when it comes to me, she references the episode that we did on Everyday and she politely asked me to not use the phrase PTSD flashbacks. So this is one of those education moments that I'm really happy to have somebody write in and advise me on because sometimes when you're podcasting, you say stupid things and sometimes you just don't know any better in your general life. So it didn't occur to me that somebody who might be suffering from PTSD might not appreciate how someone make a flippant comment about a YA text like Before I Fall and use the term casually Mm -hmm. as though it's not a real life issue to somebody. So Josephine had a bit of her story about why it's a trigger for her that I'm not going to share on the air because it's not my story to tell. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was very important to acknowledge the fact that I really value that A, Josephine, you were willing to share that with me, but also B, that you took the time to say, hey, 
dumb guy on the internet please be respectful be smart about the way that you're talking about various things so i will not say something like that in the future i think that we are really lucky to have listeners who care enough about the show to call us in and ask us to do better yeah so thanks josephine for writing in and i hope that if other people are listening and they're like there's something that has been bugging them or there's something they'd like to talk about with us or they just notice something in the future i hope that joe's handling of josephine's email will encourage you to write in and let us know because we want to be the best at this that we can be absolutely and if we can use the show as an opportunity to educate other people this is not the first time that i've opened my mouth as wide as it possibly can (laughs) and stuck a boot right in there so i'm always happy to learn something that i should say differently or something better or something that i should just not be saying at all you know i think internalized ableism is maybe the hardest thing I shouldn't say that like it's a generalization for me my own internalized ableism has been the hardest thing to scrub from my speech I'm working really hard to not say things like oh my god that's crazy yes yeah I find it a real struggle and and to me it's indicative of just how ingrained ableism is just in in the very way we use the language so yeah keep us honest and critique us and know that we are grateful for it absolutely yeah so my final plug and i'm gonna apologize as somebody who wrote this in as a recommendation i didn't take the time to go back and look to see if this was from a listener but between last week's show and this week's show i had an opportunity to read fierce femmes and notorious liars Uh, a dangerous trans girl's confabulous memoir i'm so excited you told me to go out and buy it immediately and i did and i haven't been able to read it yet but i'm literally looking at it on my pod i have like a tbr shelf just for the podcast and it's on the top of it so it will i will get to it soon yes in fact i may make you because i'm doing a dangerous thing by publicly announcing this but i've reached out (gasps) to the author in the hopes that we can actually get her to come on and do an appendix episode yes 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 because i honestly enjoyed that book so so much so in case people I know, right? (laughs) So people have forgotten. Here's the quick logline. It's a haunted young girl who happens to be a kung fu expert and pathological liar, runs away from an oppressive city where the sky is always gray in search of love and sisterhood, and finds herself in a magical place known only as the Street of Miracles. And it is written by Kai Cheng Tom. She is a Canadian author. She, I think, grew up in Montreal. She now lives in Toronto. If she doesn't agree to come on the show, I may have to find her and beg her in person. (laughs) (laughs) Don't stalk the author, Joe, please. (laughs) I was actually going to say, don't stalk the author. And then I was like, I probably shouldn't make fun of stalking. That's a fair point. Don't make an unsolicited visit to the author. There we go. Thank you. All this to say that if people were intrigued by that logline and maybe had it on their reading list, I really strongly encourage you to move it all the way up to the top. This was a very fast read it's a very entertaining read i think brenna you're gonna love it because there's all kinds of experimental writing in here there's poetry there's magical realism it's canadian and it's populated almost exclusively by fantabulous trans women of all different shapes and sizes and personalities and honestly this book was an absolute joy to read i'm so excited i'm so excited yeah So transitioning from a great read. (laughs) I was going to say when you were like, it's a fast paced, quick read. Oh my gosh. I was like, wow, so it's the opposite of the Maze Runner. Yeah. Welcome back to the Maze Runner. Why are we alternating between good reads and bad reads? I don't know, Joe, but I was looking at the schedule and I was like, ah, we're doing the Maze Runner. And then like in two weeks, we're doing the Hunger Games and I just don't. No, man. Yeah, spoilers. We're giving the game away. So we're alternating between some big name properties. But yeah, the decision to do Maze Runner was mostly because it's an anniversary. And then we are going to be doing the Hunger Games in a couple of weeks. And that's mostly because we want to get that first book covered so that we can do an anniversary for it later on. Yeah. But also because I just think Hunger Games is more interesting. Well, I can't be less interesting, can it? (laughs) (laughs) So Maze Runner, for those who don't know, I guess I should do the uh, synopsis. If you can. I'll try. I was informed last week that I'm not very good at this. You... (laughs) As 
Hannah ever so politely suggested, you tend to get a little granular. (laughs) All right. Maze Runner (laughs) is a 2009 young adult dystopian science fiction novel written by American author James Dashner. It's the first of, I believe, a trilogy. Yes. I don't know. I think there's like a bunch of them now because I think there are a bunch of prequels and stuff. And I guess in narrative order, this is actually the third one, but I couldn't possibly care to look that information up. No, I can't be asked to do that much homework for this. (laughs) So our protagonist is named Thomas. We meet him sort of at the moment that he is awakening in a metal elevator en route to a place called the Glade. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know how he got there. And he is slowly acculturated to this community, which is basically just feral boys. Yes, it is the Lost Boys. It's very Lord of the Flies. Um, None of the boys know why they're there. None of them have any memory of what's brought them to this place. All they know is that once a week, a box shows up. It has supplies and sometimes a person. The person becomes part of their community and they all have different jobs, you know, like there's farmers and there's cleaners and cooks and I don't know, everybody's job. They live communally in this space and outside of the walls that protect them, there is a maze. They don't know why there's a maze. They just go out every day and try to figure out if there's a way out of the maze while a group of them who are runners go out. But that's it. And they've been there for two years and they've learned basically nothing. (laughs) Right. About any they run it. the maze every day and it changes overnight and they map it, but they can't find any kind of pattern and they're basically just stuck in a rut. And with Thomas's arrival comes a whole slew of changes very suddenly. <gasps> changes, Brenna, in a YA novel. Could it be that the protagonist is something of a chosen one? Oh, gosh. I think the chosen one aspect is like way worse in the movie than in the book. But like, yes, there's a lot of chosen one-ishness about this thing. Yes, we are talking capital C, capital O for both these texts. So the first big change that happens is the next day, immediately after Thomas's arrival, another person shows up in the the box and it's bum bum bum, a girl. No! And she's the first girl and she's holding a note that says she's the last one ever. 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 So there's going to be no more children. The other thing that happens after Thomas arrives is that about a week after Thomas arrives, the supplies stop coming. So now there's no supplies and there's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) The the stakes just keep escalating here. There's a bunch of stuff that happens in the maze. Thomas figures out how to like outsmart, he thinks maybe, these like griever things that are sort of like... I don't know. Slugs with mechanical arms and (laughs) stakey bits. I pictured them as if a giant slug and a giant weed whacker had a baby. That is a really apt description. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, they have lost members of the community to these grievers in the past, so they have a very strong fear of them. Thomas manages to trick three of them into sort of flying over a cliff and maybe dying. Maybe not. He's the chosen one. He's the chosen one. If the griever uh, pierces you, you have this flood of old memories that come back. So the only people who have any sort of memories of what the world is like outside of this maze are people who have been through that trauma, but they never remember it in enough detail to be useful. (laughs) Well, I think also because their memories themselves are not inherently useful, which is one of the problems with the text is that (laughs) Thomas is only a chosen one because he, spoiler alert to the end of this book, happens to be involved in the whole conspiracy. Yes. So basically... Way to manufacture your own chosen one status. <laughs> basically, the other big change that comes is that like day and night stop happening. The world becomes sort of a gray. There's not enough light to grow the crops. And so mm-hmm. the boys have to, and Teresa, who's the girl, <laughs> have to figure out some way to get out. The doors stop closing so the grievers can get in at night. So like everything goes to hell basically after Thomas's arrival, which yeah. leads some people to be a little bit suspicious of Thomas. And Thomas self-sacrifices by stabbing himself with a griever so that he can find those memories. And yes, he uncovers that he and Teresa were both part of the group of people who actually created the maze. And there's like some horrible plague happening on Earth and people are dying. And the children of the people who died somehow don't have the plague and are geniuses. So they get kidnapped and put in the maze. But only boys, which is never explained. Um, (laughs) The patriarchy. (laughs) At the end of the book, they get saved, comma, or do they, question mark, the end. 
I think unlike any other book that we've actually covered on this, this isn't just the start of a trilogy or the start of a YA franchise. This is literally book one, and it just ends. <laughs> and the expectation is that you will go to the store and immediately pick up book two because <gasps> there's so much more to discover, and this book does not stand on its own. No, it really doesn't because so much is not explained. And no, like it's not even a preface to the story to come. It's like, haha, none of this matters because there's actually a whole other thing that's happening. Normally, I like things like, oh, this is actually like narratively the third, but I released it first. That's a kind of cool thing. But here it just pissed me off because I didn't care enough about anything that was happening. Yeah. Okay. So, why did you not care? <sighs> you know how we've been talking about like, why is it YA? directly targeted at boys more successful mm -hmm. so this is why a directly targeted at boys now why would you say that <laughs> it is the hunger games with testosterone it is and maybe lord testicles of the, <laughs> lord of the flies by a crappier author yes this whole obsession with self-sacrifice and manliness and yes. action yeah. but without any attention paid to character development to no. make it worthwhile no. i was saying to joe like the movie really pissed me off because the movie is just so literally balls out that i was just like i don't care about any of this but to clarify it's not literally balls out. <laughs> we're not delving into hard r territory here Brenna. okay fair point. i misused the word literally <laughs> um, but like I was saying to Joe that the one redeeming thing about the book for me, and I want to be clear, I didn't like it. Like I'm not, I'm not making okay. a pitch for the book, but the one redeeming feature of the book to me was a character who we didn't talk about in the synopsis named Chuck. Yeah, because at the end of the day, he doesn't really factor into anything except to live to be sacrificed. Yeah, he totally does, which pissed me off. But in the middle of the book, the only person who is vulnerable in the whole book is yes. Chuck. I don't know why James Dashner doesn't know this. That makes him the only compelling character. <laughs> like, I don't know why he doesn't know that the characters don't all just have to be, like, made of titanium to be compelling. Chuck is younger than most of the other boys. Yeah. He's tubby. He's not as capable. He's not very smart. I mean, James Dashner is incredibly heavy-handed with, like, things society doesn't value. Chuck has all of them. Yes. Which makes him the only character who has flaws in any meaningful way yeah he's the only kind of human being of yeah. the entire bunch because all the rest of them are frankly a-holes and the only time i care about thomas literally at all is in these brief moments where some of chuck's empathy and vulnerability rubs off on him so chuck is the only character who's honest enough to say like i wonder if i have parents i hope i do i miss them i wish i was a normal kid Right? Like, he's the only one who ever says anything like that. And in, there are moments where he actually has something of a relationship, a friendship with Thomas. Yeah. That's literally the only part of the book I cared about. And then, yes, they sacrifice him to make Thomas's character arc more, I don't know, emotional in quotation marks, I guess. But I still didn't care about him. I don't even think it was that. It's, it smacks of, and I'm sorry to people who enjoy this book or the series in general, but it smacks to me of really lazy, emotionally manipulative writing Hugely emotionally by James Dashner to say, yeah, I've got this vulnerable character. He's young. He's not capable of taking care of himself in the way that the other characters in the book are. Of course, I'm going to make him a hero, and I'm making quotation marks with my hands, I'm going to make him the hero and sacrifice himself to save the chosen one. And it's another way that the book only cares about, like, physical strength and brawn, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's exhausting. Having that emotional vul vulnerability doesn't help you in any other no. way unless you choose to transform it into action to yeah. save the life of someone better than you. Oh, I hated it so much. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the <laughs> second time that I've read this book. What? I think I read it when I found out that they were adapting it into a film. 
Because that's something I used to do in my own spare time. What the actually? <laughs> I can't believe you've read this twice. I can't believe you made me read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, this was one of those things where I thought, maybe I was just too harsh on the first read. And then when I went to log in my Goodreads of this book, I give it the exact same score, which is <laughs> two out of five. <laughs> yeah. Because I find these children so disagreeable yeah they're so unlikable yeah they're so confrontational and aggressive they don't act like children they don't act like teenagers no because i think so the other text that we haven't referenced that i think dashner's maybe going for is one of the texts that you and i bonded over and think is the height of ya fiction this screams to me i'm doing a young adult version of watership down with boys where there's these political <gasps> illusions about the way that societies are constructed and how... Oh, you're right, and now I'm mad. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because there's Galley who wants society to stay exactly the same, and then there's Alvi who thinks that... Or Albi, sorry, who wants to control everyone and have things done his way. And then there's Thomas, who is more democratic but he's also intelligent and savvy and he's willing to bend the rules to think of creative solutions so obviously his model of political authority is more legitimate because a he's getting stuff done but also he's just so much more inclusive i'm so mad now you're right ah And also the thing that I really hate about the book is that 50% of it is written in questions that don't get answered. (laughs) It's very true. And there's nothing quite as unsatisfying as just having characters going around. And I know that you didn't really love Thomas in either incarnation. Loathed him. Okay, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not a compelling hero at all, because again, heroes are not compelling if they have zero vulnerability and zero flaws. No, but at least early on, he's asking the kind of questions that an audience surrogate would ask of this world. And the response is constantly, you don't need to know that. Why are you asking? Please stop asking questions. I hate you. Shut up. I'm going to lock you in this underground pit. It's so frustrating. It does not make for interesting reading, James Dashner. To just have people constantly say, oh, yes, an answer here will illuminate and open up the story and advance the plot. No, I'm just going to shut that down at every possible instance. Yep. So aggravating. It's extremely aggravating. And, you know, there's something interesting at the core of what Dashner's doing here, right? Like, as a kid who had to go through all those gifted kid tests as a child, (laughs) I just kept reading it. And I was like, oh, man, were those tests secretly evil? That's a story I want to read. But he never... No, no, Brenna, wicked is good. (laughs) Oh, God, don't (laughs) I was like, yeah, it's a great musical. Can we move on? To me, there's an interesting story in there in this idea of like sacrificing a young generation in order to save a society that has been destroyed by an older generation. Right. Like there's some compelling stuff in there and Dashner has no idea what's interesting and what's not. No, I'm in agreement with you. I think the idea of children being sacrificed for the betterment of society, it's very Whitney Houston. The children are our future. (laughs) There's something that resonates very strongly about young adult fiction that is willing to put children into jeopardy and harm for the quote-unquote betterment of society. Because at the end of the day, particularly in North America... I was going to say we're living through it in climate change? (sighs) (laughs) Sorry, did I get too dark? I'm looking forward to the YA books that are all about dystopian climate change in the years to come. But there's always been this cachet of if you really want to make a statement, put the children in danger. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's the genesis of this story or that you're right, there was a compelling narrative somewhere in the kernel of this. And Dashner just seems to have taken the least interesting, most obvious route to get there and it's just so poorly executed it just makes for a very frustrating read i agree and yet i think i blew your mind today when i texted you to say that i actually liked the book no i didn't like either of them i disliked the book less than i disliked the film (laughs) because i watched the film first and 
what is so annoying about the book is that you never get any questions answered and right. it goes on and on forever with the same questions not getting addressed but the film has the exact opposite problem which is <laughs> there's just no context for anything like i didn't understand what was happening in the film at all and this is the first time in god however many of these conversations about adaptations we've had where i really felt like until i read the book i had no idea what i had just watched that is so interesting to me. I found me. it utterly incoherent. Now, is that just because the film, as we've often discovered, prefers to lean into its action segments as opposed to letting the characters have some genuine conversation and connection? I think that's a huge part of it. It is an action movie with a capital action <laughs> movie. But, <laughs> but for me, the character of Teresa is a classic example. Like... I find it hard to talk about this because I don't want anybody to think that I'm lauding what the book is doing because I don't think Dashner is a particularly gifted writer. No. With the character of Teresa in the book, we get this like, what? There's a girl? There's never been a girl. What do we do with this information? And then it's like, oh, wow, she has telepathy with Thomas? What's up there? And like, she's part of how we unravel what little sort of understanding we actually develop about the world. Right. But she's teased throughout, like from the time she arrives, she's a presence in the text. In the film, it's like, a girl is here. And then 25 minutes later, Teresa, you're with me. We're going in. And I'm like, what? Why? Why are you taking <laughs> Teresa with you? I have no context for why you think this person is useful to you at all. Like, if the book is bad at character development, the film's not even interested in it. Hmm. It's just action sequence, action sequence, action sequence, confusing exposition, <laughs> action sequence, somebody dies I don't care about action sequence there's too many men in it i don't need to look at this many boys for this long i don't <laughs> care about them and there's too many of them and i can't tell them apart i found the characters easier to distinguish as people in the book than in the film in the film they all ran together for me like i couldn't remember who i was supposed to be mad at from one minute to the next yeah well, i just since... didn't like it oh right we haven't even played the trailer <laughs> no it's my first day <laughs> All right, well, here's your trailer for The Maze Runner, which is celebrating its fifth anniversary, so that means it came out in 2014, directed by Wesval. Day one, Greeny. Rise and shine. What is this place? Welcome to the Glade. Who put us here? We don't know. What's through there? You guys can't just keep me here. I can't let you leave. Why won't you tell me what's out there? That's the maze. Every morning when those doors open, the runners look for a way out. And no one has ever survived a night in the maze. What happens to them? We call them grievers. We don't belong here. Somebody built the maze. I think it's time we find out what we're really up against. You're not like the others. You're curious. What the hell is that? This is the first real clue you found. Who knows where this might lead us? It's a girl. Everything started changing the moment you showed up. What if we were sent here for a reason? The doors aren't closing. They're here. So, what we have here. Screenplay written by two different people. Never a good sign. It's a little more common than you might expect. <laughs> so one is Noah Oppenheim, and we will... Come back to him if we ever get to Allegiant, which is the third <sighs> and final of the Divergent films. Easily the worst. But strangely yeah, enough, say. he also wrote the screenplay for Jackie, which is the biopic of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis that starred Natalie Portman from a couple of years ago that was very, very well received. So that's a weird thing. I was going to say, that's a very random. I know. <laughs> He only has four screenwriting credits, and those were the two really noticeable ones. Okay, that's... Okay. It's very odd. Yeah. Weird. And then the other guy is Grant Pierce Myers, and this is his only feature film writing credit. So 
I don't understand the connection between the two of them. I don't know how they work together, but... Weird. Yeah. So our cast is comprised of Dylan O'Brien as Thomas, and I knew him at the time because he was starring, well, co-starring on MTV's Teen Wolf. Teresa is played by Cayasco Delario, and she was from the UK version of The Skins TV show. Oh, yeah. Not The Skins, just Just Skins. skins. (laughs) So this was her big US breakout debut, and she's gone on to be in a couple of other things but not YA related. Galley is played by Will Poulter and he's gone on to actually become a fairly accomplished actor. He was just in Midsummer this past summer and he was in Black Mirror Bandersnatch which came out near the end of the year last year. He's a decent bad guy. He is. He often plays morally questionable characters or characters who are kind of smirky. So this is very much on point for him. Mm-hmm. And then the other noticeable person is Thomas Brody Sangster. He plays Newt and a lot of people will recognize him as the grown up version of the child from Love Actually. He's cute. He's he very fine. cute. Mm-hmm. He's grown up into a very lanky kind of yeah. actor, so it's very odd because the face looks exactly the same, but the body is very different. He looks wildly English. Right, yeah. yeah. I think most of the cast is, ironically enough, because mm. Will Poulter and Kaya Scodelario are also. And then we've got a couple of other less famous actors. Amil Amin is Albi, and he was either the first or the second season of Sense8. And then Mino is played by Kai Jong Lee, and these films are his only credit. Which I thought was weird, because I thought he was okay. Yeah, I actually thought he was, yeah, I had no problem with him. Wasn't he in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt? Oh, he might be. I think he was. I think he's Dong. And you know how rarely I recognize someone, so I'm probably wildly wrong. But I think... You are correct. Whoa! Oh my gosh, someone send me a prize. <laughs> <laughs> this literally never happens to Brenna. This never happens to Brenna. <laughs> yes, and then the one adult of note, because of course this is a film that's populated almost entirely by children, is Patricia Clarkson plays Chancellor Ava Page, who appears solely in Dream Visions and briefly on a TV monitor in the last two minutes of the film. Yep. And people would know her from previous episode on Easy A. Oh. And a million other things, of course. Okay. It's funny because I like I pulled up the Wikipedia for the film while you were talking and I'm looking at the the rest of the characters and literally Can you even identify them? No, I was thinking like there's Frypan, Jeff, Ben, and Zart. And if you if you told me I could have a hundred thousand dollars if I correctly identified which one of the random bros in this movie was Frypan, Jeff, Ben, or Zart, I would leave here with no money. It's weird because Frypan is kind of a character in the book in that he has a name and he shows up in a bunch of scenes but has no character. Yeah. But I didn't even know Frypan was in the movie. (laughs) I didn't either. Honestly, I really think that that is the failing of, I think honestly it's the failing of both texts. The characters are just not particularly interesting and neither author nor director seems particularly interested in the characters but yeah i didn't realize just how bad it was until i saw those four names and was like wow you couldn't pay me also somebody named clint and who the hell was winston i have no idea i mean i remember who they were in the book but like i could not pinpoint them in a cast photo yeah it's um it's super well done (laughs) but i think the main reason that this exists And feel free to correct me. Mm. So if you look at the timeline, this film came out in 2014. Mm -hmm. It comes out in between the second Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and the first of the Mockingjays. I can hear the studio execs. You know, kids really like that uh, that Hunger Games stuff, but uh, I think we can all agree that they don't like women. I mean, it's tricky, right? The book is populated almost exclusively by boys, so it would be hard to make this adaptation with more of a gender equity in mind. It's also what I hate about the book, though, so it's convenient (laughs) that I also hated about the film. Yes. Because, okay, here's the thing. Because there's no explanation, right? No. There's no attempt 
to understand or explain why if it's all about these intellectual tests that these kids have been going through or it's all about this fact that they none of them got the plague why is it only boys and somehow not only is there no explanation but nobody else is interested in knowing that either no i think the the thing that i took away from it was and we said it right out the top i think that this is dashner doing lord of the flies yeah so i said that it was uh oh man i've gotten to the point in the recording where i start to lose my mind and can't remember any explicit <laughs> details no that happened when you were reading the book <sighs> there was a little bit of that too but like okay even in lord of the flies we get something of an explanation, right? Lord of the Flies is happening in the midst of some kind of war that's not well explained. And these boys, they're obviously private school boys, right? Like they've been at a boys school and they're marooned on this island. Like we have some framing around why it's an island full of only boys. Dashner doesn't seem to even... <sighs> at no point does it occur to Dashner to even think like the audience might wonder why it's just boys here. I wonder if this is a failure of construction in the way that the books are separated. Very I know possible. we had a very wonky discussion in After about how it was written as one text and then just arbitrarily divided into yeah. separate books upon publication. I don't know what the thought process was in the way that these books are divided. I've never read the other books because I so aggressively hated this one i've seen the second film because all three books were adapted into separate films so we do have a full film trilogy that we could do brenna which i won't make you do because i am already on thin ice with you <laughs> but uh i do wonder if maybe the explanation is revealed in a later book i don't think so but i did also want to highlight just because i recognize that we haven't always done this for the films, we talk about the cast and we sometimes talk about the aesthetics. We don't always talk about how successful they are. No, we don't. This was very successful, though. This was really successful. So the budget is a little bit high at $34 million, but we are talking about, in the grand, ambitious visual scope of the film, it looks pretty good. It's got some big say, action sequences. Fine. Yeah. The only thing that is compelling about the movie is the way it looks, so I'm glad that it got that right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when we compare it to something like The Giver, oh, I think this no. film looks demonstrably better. But yeah, so $34 million, relatively high. Opening weekend, $32 million. So it made its production budget almost all the way back on opening weekend. Ended up grossing $102 million in the U.S. And a cumulative worldwide gross of $348 million. That, folks, is obviously the reason why we got two more films yep. but also i think it's a testament to what was happening in ya adaptations at this particular time mm -hmm. so when we get to the hunger games in a couple of weeks that box office figure is going to get blown out of the water yep but it's the rising tide lifts all boats this film just by sheer proximity and the fact that they could probably market it as hey if you like that one you probably but you like hate this women. one but you hate women <laughs> this one has less of that romance stuff in it did having a girl protagonist make you have to think about women too much we fixed it with the maze runner plus we've got more squiggly things <laughs> i don't know i think the most notable thing about this as a property particularly for the film is just the fact that this is an example of a subparish like mediocre getting the job mostly done action film that made bank mm. because of what was happening at the box office in popular culture around YA texts yep yeah no you're exactly right I know that you're exactly right but I find it profoundly depressing <laughs> Here's my question, though. Do you think that this would have been a better book if it had been equal girls and boys? I mean, for me, it at least would have... I was constantly wondering when somebody was going to explain it to me. And mm. when that never came, it was like, why don't you think that this is worth explaining? Right? Like, the idea that someone could construct a society that has no women in it and not think anybody would have any questions about that, I find weird. And the fact that our only two female characters, one is basically a pawn, a wildly underused pawn, better in the book than the film, but my gosh, either way. And then right. the evil genius. 
right? Like that's evil lady scientists. This is what happens when you let women put on white trench coats. Well, it's kind of a weird message in the context of what's happening, right? Like I just, I don't know. It's weird. There's so few details. I mean, to me, that is one of the biggest issues with both the book and the film. I hate the way the characters interact. I don't like most of the characters. You know, the action in the film borders on incomprehensible at different yeah. times, whatever. These are all forgivable things, depending on your mileage. But at the end of the day, when you get to the end of both book and film, you're no left with this giant, what is this? Why <laughs> yeah. did we have to read or watch all of this? Because it doesn't seem to matter. No. And the explanation that we get is so perfunctory. Oh, well, there was this solar flare and it turned people into (laughs) zombies and somehow children of the future (laughs) and the movie ends and book ends to be continued please pick up book number two and please also watch the movie that comes out next year no that is not satisfying that's not even a cliffhanger that's the prologue that you wrote when you drank too much and then you opened up your computer the next day and when you were <laughs> sober you looked at the screen and said oh hey I wrote a preamble interesting <laughs> yeah that's exactly the problem I think is that there is no payoff you get no payoff and it would be one thing if it was a very well constructed or formally interesting book to make you wait for the payoff but mm-hmm. It's a chore to slog through. The book is a chore to slog through. And it ain't short. And it's not short. And the movie is exhausting to watch. And it ain't short either. And it ain't short. And it's like, (laughs) half the time I'm like, I don't know who's attacking who. I don't know what's happening. I can't tell any of these non-threatening white boys apart from each other. I don't know what's happening 90%. Like, they're both exhausting. And then you've done it for no reason. Yeah. And to say to you, well, the payoff will come in the next book. You you didn't earn that. mm, No, no, no. And you didn't earn it in the film either. And the fact that they just kept making the films, was there the same kind of precipitous drop in earnings with Maze Runner as there had been with Hunger Games? Uh, Good question. You keep going. I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Okay. Let me tell you about some other things I disliked about this property. While Joe's looking that up, I'm going to spend some time telling you about Teresa, who's a character who is wildly underused in both texts. Because you have this change to the ecosystem of the narrative with the introduction of a female character. But the fact that she's a girl, we never find out why that's significant. (laughs) Because in order, I guess, to explain why that's significant, they would have had to acknowledge that the world only had boys in it before? I don't know. But we don't get any payoff for that. So... She eventually develops something of an emotional relationship. We think she might have been in a relationship with Thomas in the time that they lived before the maze. Yeah. But we don't even get any payoff with that. Not that I wanted it. Are we meant to be intrigued? Oh, we're totally meant to be intrigued. That's why they're holding hands in that last scene. Right, yeah. I mean, I didn't care, but we're meant to. (laughs) I know that there is. So as I said, I've seen the second film. I do know for sure. Did you ship it, Joe? Did you ship it? I think you're meant to ship it, and then there's actually a betrayal. There's some kind of reversal where it's uh, she ends up working against Thomas for some other. Wait, the only other woman in the book is also evil by the second book. Well, cool. I'm assuming she comes back around by the third one. Cool, 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 cool. I hated this. I hated it so much. (laughs) So I do have box office figures for you. Okay. There is a drop, but it's not quite as precipitous as you might have imagined. The second film bumps up the budget significantly. I mean, when you make a film that does very well, they'll give you more money so you can make more action sequences. So it had a budget of $61 million. So I'm guessing it just had double the action scenes. Oh, the second one is flat out ridiculous. I think at one point <laughs> Thomas slides down a building that's collapsing and all of the glass is shattering and he's just windsurfing it. Think of that scene from The Giver where they just yeah. go down the dome. It's like that, only with glass and explosions. Yeah. So 61 million, it ended up making 81 million in the States, but still 312 US, or worldwide, sorry. Worldwide audiences keep letting me down. Well, this is why action sells, because it does well internationally. Mm. So the final film had a budget of $62 million, almost the same as the second one. Gross of only $58 million in the U.S., but then a still very large cumulative worldwide, 288 
I don't care if you all have solar flare disease at this point. <laughs> Interesting to note, though, there's a very large gap. So the first film released in 2014, second film released a year later in 2015, and then there's a two-year gap, and the final film comes out in 2018, but it was meant to come out earlier. The reason it didn't is actually because Dylan O'Brien had a car accident on the set while making the film, and he very nearly died. Oh. Yes. I can also confirm that there's more women in the later films. Well, that's something. Yeah. The ultimate villain is also revealed to be Aiden Gillen. He was Littlefinger on Game of Thrones. I think my favorite thing about you, Joe, is that even like two years into this project, you still say people's names to me like I'm going to know who the hell you're talking about. Tell your husband he will know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, can we stop talking about this movie now? Uh, Only (laughs) if you give me your YA bingo. Okay, I will. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so just to confirm what we have on the board. Yes. I've sent you the board. I'm looking at it right now. So we've added Becca's Unlikely Friendships. And we've also added an extra one called Convenient Expertise, which was given to us over Twitter Mm -hmm. by a former student of mine, Sam. Who goes by the handle Rise Indigo. Nice. Hannah added absentee adults last mm-hmm. week. You added CGI and I added gaslighting. And then whatever you add today. Okay, so I want to say that that edition of Convenient Expertise mm-hmm. is perfect for the film. Right. Because that's one of my frustrations with the film is just how chosen one E Thomas is in the film. He like shows up and he immediately kills a reaver. Or a Mm -hmm. griever, whatever you call them. Like, immediately. Like, at least in the book, there's a day that passes. So that one, dystopia and absentee adults from the existing card. Yes. Okay. And then, oh my god, the thing I was going to add just went out of my head. Okay, you talk. I'll figure it out. Okay. So I'm also going to continue with CGI because it's not incredibly egregious in here, but there's clearly you know some mazy shenanigans going on yes and then i'm gonna pull a slot from the original run so when we did ya bingo for book one you added allusions to classic lit (gasps) nice so i'm gonna pull that in because as we've discussed we've got lord of the flies we've got a little bit of lost boys and we've also got watership down watership down there we go This is where we say, James Dashner, you are no Richard Adams. No. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) And I thought of what I wanted to add. Okay. And you know what? I can't believe it hasn't been on the bingo card yet because I say it, gosh, at least every week. (laughs) A mediocre white voice. Right. Yep. Oh, we are going to get so much play out of that. (laughs) They're love heroes. They're saving the universe. What would we do without mediocre white boys? This is why we need a film adaptation of... Literally anything, not by a mediocre white boy! I was going to say fierce and fabulous trans Yes, yes. I need you to read that book so that you can talk to me and also (laughs) her about that adaptation because cinematic potential. So good. I'm so excited to read it. I'm so excited to read it. Okay, so actually we did... All things considered, not too badly on our bingo card with the Maze Runner. But it also means we can stop talking about it now. Thank God, and never again. And if you even so much as try to make me read the second book in this series, I walk. (laughs) I almost want you to watch the second film. (laughs) If something ever happens to you and half of your brain gets smashed. (laughs) And you can't compute big words or important themes i want you to watch the scorch trials that's the second one because it's just dylan o'brien like cgi dylan o'brien jumping between buildings that are collapsing like 60 story buildings no No. it's so bad next week resetting myself no you have to do the exit and then you talk about next week really always yes because we're trying to get people to listen all the way to the end oh right okay so we know that a lot of people like maze runner because it sells a lot of copies so if you want to yell at us about how wrong we are and we will in turn yell back at you about how wrong you are or maybe we'll share some gifts i don't know you can find us on the twitters use hashtag hkhs pod to chat about the show you'll catch both of us that way Mm -hmm. Uh, if you want to just yell at me personally because 
You like mediocre white boys? Because you love mediocre white boys or because Hunger Games with no women was exactly why you went to see The Maze Runner. You can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you? I am at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. If you've got something longer, I will not read Maze Runner fan fiction. I'm drawing a line under this and I'm never thinking about these characters again. But if you'd like to recommend a book or chat with us in a more long form, you can email us. It's hkhspod at gmail.com. You betcha. So next week, we are getting into a land I'm a little more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. We're going to hop into the world of comics with Ghost World. Yes. yes. Written by Daniel Klaus or Close. I don't know. That's why I didn't say it. Fair enough. And then the <laughs> film is by Terry Zigwaf. Fabulous. I think you're very much going to enjoy this. It's disaffected teen girls who are not happy with their future, but they do enjoy each other's company as best friends until they have a riff about a man. But he's an <gasps> older man. I don't know. I've heard great things. I've not read or seen the film. And I'm actually very excited because it's a bit of a bucket list item. Cool. Mm-hmm. One of my most favorite colleagues from my last job used to teach this. So I'm oh, sure really? it's got a lot to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So then until next time, I will see you on the comic book page this time. Ooh, and mm-hmm. I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.